0: Inequalities are among the defining issues of our times. Whether it's the rising share of income going to the top 1%, stagnating wages, big differences in life expectancy between different parts of the country, or high rates of unemployment faced by people from some ethnic minorities, it seems that inequalities matter for understanding just about everything that's going on in modern life. These issues are at the forefront of today's public and policy debates, and they've been linked to some of the most important political events of our time, from the rise of populism across the developed world and the vote for Brexit, to global protest movements and the riots we've seen in France this summer. We see these inequalities everywhere in our own lives, in the workplace, at the school gates, travelling around the country, or even just going down a couple of streets further from where you live. And we see them every time we turn on the news.
1: Inequality is on the rise. So, are billionaires part of the problem or the solution? A tiny elite made up of the
0: privately educated are five times more likely to hold the top jobs in politics,
1: media and the judiciary.
0: Welcome to the IFS Zooms In on Inequality. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, and over the next month we are releasing a mini-series featuring deep dives on various aspects of inequality in modern Britain. These special episodes will be hosted by Sameer Keynes, economics columnist at the Financial Times and one of my former colleagues here at the IFS. We'll be speaking to the researchers who have been involved in the IFS Deaton Review of Inequalities, a multidisciplinary project led by Nobel Prize winner Professor Sir Angus Deaton and funded by the Nuffield Foundation, which explores the causes and consequences of inequality in Britain and beyond. In this episode, we'll explore some of the central themes of the review, What's been happening to inequality? Why does it matter? How should we begin tackling it? I'll be speaking to Angus Deaton, Professor of Economics at Princeton University and leader of the IFS Deaton Review, about what he's learned during the course of this research.
2: I don't think we're downing equality of opportunity. We're not saying it's a bad thing. Let's give everyone as much opportunity as we can. It's just that it's not enough.
0: And we've got to care about equality of outcomes too. We'll also hear from Deborah Satz a philosopher at Stanford University who will talk about her work on the reasons we care about inequality.
3: We're just basically leaving a lot of people as less than full members of the society because they really have so few opportunities.
0: And we'll hear from Robert Joyce, a deputy director here at the IFS and a member of the expert panel leading the IFS Deaton Review on how economic
1: inequality has changed over the last 50 years. There was a big explosion really in economic inequality, particularly in the 1980s, that was the sort of apex.
0: When people talk about inequality and how it's been rising, they're often thinking about the last 40 or 50 years and how things have changed over that period. And generally they're thinking about economic inequality, the differences in incomes between the rich and the poor, high earners and low earners. But inequality has many other dimensions. Inequalities of health, inequalities between men and women, inequalities between different races, and so on. And looking over the long term, the last two, three, four hundred years or more, it's actually obvious that many of those inequalities have reduced. And for many, this reduction in inequality over that time period feels like part and parcel of social, political and economic progress. So I started by asking Angus a difficult question, to give us a very short history of inequality.
2: That's quite a task, you know, very short history, usually a couple of hundred pages long, (laughs) I'm not (laughs) sure I can do it in, in two minutes. But it is, I think, very important to look back, because it's very easy to think there's a lot of doom and gloom right now, and that has something to do with inequality. But, you know, we have to focus on what sort of inequalities we're talking about and what has happened in the past. You know, if you think back to the distant past when all of us would have been serfs on some grand estate, and we would not have gotten to vote, you know, most of our children would have died before their fifth birthday, or a fair fraction of them would have died before their fifth birthday. And those blessings of a longer life, of not being a serf, of getting to vote, all of those sort of things... You know, which used to be very unequal, only a very few people had them, and now a much wider range of people have them. So there's been a real sense of broadening of access to the good things of life, which used to be confined to a very small number of people. And, you know, that's been a long historical process, which I suppose you could trace back to Magna Carta. You could think about what happened in the Industrial Revolution. You can think of all the struggles during the 19th century to spread the franchise. And in the 20th century, things have gotten much better for women than they used to be. That is incomplete. They're much better, though still incomplete, for racial minorities. And by and large, you know, adults get to vote, and most of them take advantage of it. So that's on all those dimensions, there seems to have been a massive reduction in inequality in the sense of the few to a much broader number of people.
0: So over the very long term, clearly, inequality has been decreasing in many different ways. And indeed, if you look over the last 20, 30, 40 years many inequalities between men and women and between different ethnic minorities have been falling as well, though they've still got a long way to go. Now, when we turn on the news, often the inequality that's being talked about is economic inequality, and there's been a perception that in recent decades economic inequality as a whole has been widening. We can see this in rising concerns about the so-called 1% and the difference between them and the rest. But when you look closely at the data, this narrative of ever-widening economic inequality is more
1: complicated than we often hear. Here's Rob Joyce, Deputy Director at the IFS. I mean, the way I would try to give a potted recent history here is that there was a big explosion, really, in economic inequality, particularly in the 1980s. That was the sort of apex, and slightly more generally, the forces of de really created... A lot of divisions in the labor market between those who no longer had the same sort of opportunities that were provided by some of the traditional jobs and those who were able to take advantage of the increasing numbers of sort of particularly high end service roles, particularly in certain parts of the country. And all of that was, was, was a part of a huge widening and very rapid widening of income inequality in the 1980s. Since then, if you look at the similar sorts of standard summary measures of income inequality, the dispersion in incomes between rich, poor and, and middle, it tends to look like relatively little has changed since around the early 1990s. And even if you look at, at wealth inequality, which of course is is, is is different but also important, changes in the dispersion of wealth, there have been some, but they haven't been huge either over that similar kind of period. And so often this is taken to be a bit of a paradox when it's placed alongside the fact that people seem a lot more concerned about inequality now than they did even a decade or two ago. How is that, given that these standard measures never seem to show much change? All the change happened about a generation or so ago. My view, and I think one that's come out really quite strongly, evidence that's come out really quite strongly from the work of the Deaton review, is that at least some of the paradox is really here, not a paradox because the key changes in economic inequality in the last couple of decades or so are not about changes in the dispersion of incomes per se, or changes in the dispersion of wealth, but a change in the relative balance of income and wealth. What we've basically seen is a huge increase in the size of wealth holdings in the UK, driven largely by rises in asset prices like housing in particular meaning that those who began at the right time with asset holdings have benefited hugely at the same time as pretty much a stagnation in incomes, so that's nothing to do with income inequality per se, just a stagnation in the level of incomes pretty much across the board. But that creates an inequality between those who already had wealth uh, at the at the fortunate time before those asset prices rose, and those who are reliant on on earning incomes. And of course, a lot of that is a generational story: young people finding that their incomes are no higher than than previous generations were. But it's also, I think, a story of social mobility because what we now see as a result of all this is that young people today, their parents have a lot more wealth than their predecessors' parents had, but their own incomes, their own earnings in the labor market are no higher than their predecessors had. So what that means is that their economic fortunes are increasingly tied to their parents. So it's it's a change in the nature of inequality. More of the differences in people's economic prospects now are driven by parents as opposed to their own earnings than was the case a generation or so ago. And that's a reversal of a long-run trend in the opposite direction over much of the 20th century.
0: A brilliant potted history there. Income inequality not changing very much. Stagnation in incomes, which makes everyone miserable, I think it's fair to say. Wealth has become more important. And as you say, the dispersion of wealth hasn't changed very much. But of course... As there's more wealth, the gaps between the middle and the top and so on have got a lot bigger in absolute terms. It's much harder to save your way up the distribution than it used to be. You need many more years of earnings to, to, to move a few percentage points up the wealth distribution.
1: Exactly. And I mean, I can flesh that out a bit because there are some calculations we've, we've, we've done around that, which exactly exemplify the point. If you want to climb, for example, from the 50th percentile, the median, Of of the wealth distribution to the ninetieth percentile, twenty years or so ago, that required about ten years of median full-time earnings to do that. The the gap was equivalent to about ten years. Assuming you could save uh, everything
0: that you earn, yeah, pay no tax. So you know, this is a sort
1: of illustrative just to to get across the magnitudes and how they've changed. So that was ten years of median full-time earnings, whereas now that's sixteen years. So even over a, a, a period of about two decades. That, that number has gone up by about 50%. So it's harder and harder to, as you say, earn your way out of the wealth distribution.
0: I think people feel the absolute gap, particularly when it comes to wealth, more than the relative gaps, which is what we usually think about when we're thinking about distribution. And this generational change is something that's clearly impacting in a really big way. Because as you say, it's not just a one-off you might think you could live with, you know, there's a lucky generation, there's an unlucky generation, but this is going to cascade down the generations, this inequality in a sense, because if you're lucky enough to have well-off parents, then you'll be better off than your sort of peers who've got less well-off parents. And that wealth, there's a danger that it becomes more concentrated over time. We see this in the reduction in home ownership. There are just many homes out there, they're just more concentrated in their ownership because some members of the older generation not all own more than one home and they'll be, as it were, they'll be inherited by the younger generations. So this isn't just a one-off effect. I mean, one aspect of economic inequality you didn't really touch on was right at the top. I mean, quite often people are very focused right at the top. Actually, of course, it matters right across the distribution and arguably it's really the the bottom that we should be most focused on. But I observe that in many discussions of inequality as opposed to poverty, people are really focused on the top 1%. They often mean the top 0.1%. And that gap between the very top and the rest, that did continue to grow for a bit longer. But even that's we think, stopped over the last decade, decade and a half.
1: Yeah, it's definitely right to make that distinction. When we're talking about income inequality, if we're talking about specifically the gap between the very, very top and everyone else, then it's not true to say that that gap stopped increasing in 1990, actually carried on increasing, certainly up to around the 2008 financial crisis. The trends there have been different. At an absolute minimum, we saw another almost two decades of widening inequality between the very top and everyone else, compared to when we look at the rest of the distribution, where there wasn't a lot of change in income inequality, as we've as we've discussed after the 1980s.
0: And of course, there may be particular reasons to worry about the, you know, the, the, the group right at the top if they have particular political power or they have a particular role in society that that wealth that is generated from that income, that income gives them and also the sense of unfairness that it can create. Now, when we hear about inequalities in the news, we often hear about these grand narratives, the 1% versus the rest, the North versus the South, the educated versus the less well-educated. But as part of the review, we also conducted some focus groups talking to people about inequality and what they actually care about most. And it was rather striking to hear that people were often much more focused on the differences between where they lived and a couple of streets up the road, rather than the differences between the North and the South. Those things that are actually more immediately apparent to people in their everyday lives often matter more than the grand narratives those of us focused on the data think about. We worked with Bobby Duffy of the King's Policy Institute to look at why people care more about some inequalities than others. And it's very striking that you get different groups of people. Some people essentially believe inequalities are the fault of the individual. If they've done badly, it's because they've been lazy and haven't worked hard enough or don't have enough skills. If they've done well, it's down to their own effort. Obviously, these people don't see inequality as a great problem. But another group feels that it's much more difficult to make your own way. That what determines where you end up is bigger economic and societal forces that make it very difficult for some groups and very easy for other groups to do well. That group tends to care more about inequality. Here's Rob. Rob.
1: That's right. That was one of the most striking things for me actually from that line of, of work. And and it and it splits quite clearly along certain lines as well. So in particular, graduates, people with high levels of formal education, are much more likely to be what those authors term structuralists, which is essentially holding the view in general that most Big inequalities in society are to do with the structure of the society and the way it structures the rewards that different sorts of people get. Whereas those with less formal education tend to be much more likely to be what they termed individualists uh, and to be the ones who, who who really believe that it's all about individual differences in, in effort or, or other individual differences that people can, in some meaningful sense, control. And I think that's interesting. And, and another key pattern that comes out of some of the other work on attitudes that we brought together for review is that people who have different opinions about when an inequality is OK and when it's not also tend to diverge in their perception of the actual facts about the way the world is and about the way in the real world inequalities do come about. So people with different political persuasions tend not only to to disagree about what would be fair, but also to disagree about whether, in fact, inequalities arise from For example, differences in effort or unfairnesses in the way that society is structured, which I think is rather interesting and probably speaks to how difficult it is to build consensus on any of this stuff when people's perceptions of the fact tend to diverge at the same time as their their views of the ethics.
0: And of course, it's a difficult one, even on the facts, because whilst it's clearly true that people on average who start from poorer backgrounds do much worse than those who start from richer backgrounds, it's not impossible to move. And so you can see some of those examples of movement. And indeed, one of the interesting findings of some other work is that very often rich people who started off poor are less up for redistribution, the rich people who started up rich, because they, in a sense, see that they made it. So why couldn't other people, which is one of the, almost one of the paradoxes of meritocracy in all of this. So I think a lot of that is in itself very difficult to be absolutely clear what is the individual and what is the societal responsibility, which brings us to the question of opportunity versus outcome. It often feels pretty uncontroversial to say that we think that people should have equal opportunities. It's not fair if some people start off with a big head start. Equality of outcome is rather more controversial. If people work harder, if they're more skillful, better educated, then maybe it's fine that they do better. But how helpful is that distinction between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome? I asked Deborah Satz, professor of philosophy at Stanford, to elaborate.
3: I think that inequality of opportunity and inequality of outcome are connected because even if you have equality of opportunity for one generation and people fare very differently, you may have, because of different outcomes, inequality of opportunity for the next generation. So you can't fully separate equality of opportunity and equality of outcome. We do see you know, a stickiness to social position. It's not that we're in a feudal society where you can't change rank. But it's much harder to move from the bottom quintile to the top quintile than from a middle quintile to the top quintile. A lot of people stay in the top quintile who are in the top quintile and people born to the bottom quintile, lots of them stay in the bottom quintile. You know, In a society that claims to be somewhat meritocratic, that's a worry because we're missing lots of talent in the bottom quintile. And we're just basically leaving a lot of people as less than full members of the society because they really have so few opportunities. And, you know, we have a narrow bottleneck that there's one way to success, which is tends to be through a college degree. And there are some people who don't have access to this or can't have access to this, but have other kinds of skills, but don't have a path. To a decent life without going through this one bottleneck. And we ought to be thinking about alternative paths, which there used to be more of, I think, when there were really robust communities and strong labor unions and lots of opportunities for advancement for workers outside the college route. We also used to have more people from low income backgrounds as representatives. Certainly, that was true in the UK. And I think that's less true today.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think you and I, Paul, are probably examples of people who did have opportunities that our parents didn't have. And, you know, I spent a lot of my life celebrating that, thinking, you know, this was a better Britain than it was for my dad, and let alone for my granddad, for whom, you know, seizing an opportunity meant moving from farm labor into the coal mines and my transition was a lot more pleasant than that both from the starting point and the ending point but you know there's a downside to this too which is and one of the things that was really interesting as we did the review was how many people when polled thought that equality of opportunity was enough and if you gave people equal opportunity that was okay and we're sort of reaping the whirlwind of that to some extent, because the people who seized those opportunities now <laughs> you know, look down on the people who didn't seize the opportunities and say, you are your chance. We don't really care about you. You screwed it up and it's your own fault. So it turns very easily into sort of blaming the victims. And it's clear that a lot of these people who didn't succeed some of them, perhaps, for their own fault. You know, they were foolhardy or they didn't seize opportunities that were available to them. But there's a tremendous amount of luck in life, too. And a lot of people came off the rails just because they got unlucky somewhere along the way. And even people who really believe in the quality of opportunity. And I don't think we're downing equality quality of opportunity. We're not saying it's a bad thing. Let's give everyone as much opportunity as we can. It's just that it's not enough. And we've got to care about equality of outcomes, too, if only because there's a lot of luck. So, you know, we've got to look after people better than that. I also worry that this um, opportunity we've had has made society unequal and made it unequal for quite a long time. So it's, it's not something that's happened sort of recently. And, you know, when societies are very unequal, there's a every step up the ladder is a bigger step than when you're sort of all together that can sort of poison society in a way, because it really matters if you get the next promotion, (laughs) you know, it, it undermines cooperation in society in that, you know, you don't really want to help your neighbor because he'll take your place on the ladder if you're not careful. So you really want to push him down. And so you can get this very competitive, very unpleasant society, which I think in the end is negative thing, even for people at the top, um, you know, even for people who are doing very well. There's very little solidarity. There's very little cooperation. And you begin to live a sort of unreasonably unpleasant life, which we don't need to have.
0: So as Deborah and Angus have said, equality of opportunity isn't enough. It leads to different outcomes and entrenches inequality and opportunity for subsequent generations. So the question I want to tackle now is how can we deal with this, given where we start? We are in a world where a small number of people have accumulated massive wealth. Part of an older generation has accumulated quite a lot of wealth, a million or two once you take it out of housing, and that wealth has become much more important relative to earnings. They feel it's their right to keep that because they think they've earned it, even if a lot of it's been down to what's happened in house prices or the stock market. And We've got a political situation, different in the US and the UK, but where regulating these things and redistributing doesn't look terribly straightforward. I asked Angus and Deborah whether it's too late, whether we should have tackled this issue when it was occurring, rather than after we've ended up with such a high level of inequality.
2: We could start by being modest. I mean, which is, uh, you know, one of the hopes I have maybe for this report is that some of the things we've talked about today will get more into the public debate than they would otherwise. But there's a very (laughs) wise sort of old joke, which is if you find yourself deep in a hole... The first thing to do is stop
1: digging.
2: Right? And yeah, um, good advice. Good advice. And you know, that would be a start here, you know, which is let's stop passing laws that make it easier that redistribute income, you know, away from ordinary people towards the super top people. And then, you know, once we've stopped digging, maybe we can start thinking about doing a little better.
3: Yeah. And we can learn also, um different countries. Have different extents of inequality, including, you know, different of the advanced countries. They're all having problems, but they have, you know, adopted some different regulations and different measures. And we can also learn from some of that.
0: And we we could have a long discussion about what the right level of tax is, what the right level of benefits are, and so on. But actually, you might want to start further back. Uh, You look at how markets work and markets are, you know, the best way we have of organizing society. they free, broadly free markets have made us an awful lot richer than we were under the feudal system or than the Soviets managed. And we often think, rightly or wrongly, I suspect wrongly, that an outcome purely from the way that the markets work, if they once got excess power, if um, there aren't monopolies and so on, are broadly appropriate because they're a reward for skill and effort and so on. So part of the problem is that there's it's contested the extent to which we should accept the outcome of where the market takes you, gives you great things, gives you, you, know, gives you iPhones and things we didn't have 20 years ago, but it also makes some people extremely wealthy. And even if that's good upfront, it may cause problems down the road as that huge wealth
1: gives them and their heirs enormous amounts of influence. Is Rob Joyce. I do think there is a strong case for looking beyond just the sort of redistributive policies here and looking at how markets work when we're thinking if we are concerned about inequalities. For a few reasons, but including the fact that you can plug the income gap, as it were, by redistributing towards certain groups who might have lost out from the set of market arrangements we have, but that doesn't necessarily really fully mitigate the actual harms that inequality is producing if they're not entirely just about the financial calculus. And it's also about people feeling they have a job, for example, that gives them prospects of advancement and dignity and self-respect, and it allows them to feel like they are participating as equal citizens in society even if they might not have the same income uh, as everyone else. Just focusing on the financial compensation, essentially money being handed from those who have been more favoured by the set of market rewards to those who haven't probably isn't the best way of safeguarding that kind of relational inequality that I think we there's a very good case for also caring about. So among other reasons, I think there there is a good case for for looking beyond, in that sense, the traditional toolkit and looking at how markets work. Now, it's extremely difficult to know exactly how to approach that. And one of the difficulties here is is that we really can't separate the things that we we want markets to do and the things that we're glad they do, like incentivizing innovation that benefits us all, from some of the harms that they can create if, if the background conditions are not ideal by, for example, giving certain players in the market more power than others and the ability to abuse others in various ways. And the reason we can't separate those things entirely, or a reason, is that this is a sort of repeated game. You could have a completely fair competition one period where, as a result of that competition, certain people do great things, they make great innovations, they benefit us all, and as a result of that, they reap some reward from that that could all be great and we might think that's totally justified at least even if it uh, and perhaps fair but that still leaves us with a problem next period which is that if we then have created some people who have done particularly well in the last period or some firms who have done particularly well in the last period they will now have more ability to exercise forms of market power that can then hurt us all and we can all think of the obvious high profile examples of this like with big tech for example that people worry about quite a lot right now, but it applies at the level of families too. You can have a completely fair competition between individuals and families. Some of them might rise to the top by doing some things that we all benefit from, but that still means that their children will have a head start in life. And so in this way, you know, it relates to the fact that you can't actually separate consistently over time equality of outcome from from equality of opportunity, as I think was discussed earlier in the conversation. And it it also means that you can't necessarily neatly separate the idea that we could have these individualist explanations for inequality that many people are persuaded by, whereby inequality arises from some people just just working harder or utilising their talents better from the more structuralist kinds of inequalities that other people think are dominant whereby it's the structure of the market and of society that determines inequalities. The reality is one probably leads to the other in the end. And so that's one of the reasons why this is so complicated. And it's one of the reasons why policy is so hard. We do want the innovation today, but we don't want the abuse of market power that might follow from that
0: tomorrow. Indeed, those are good examples of some of the trade-offs we get into very quickly here. And there are plenty more examples, including examples of things where overall policy – or economic change has been beneficial on average, but has harmed particular groups a lot. And in those circumstances, we might really worry about inequality, but not want to tackle it in a way that levels down. In other words, not reduce inequality whilst making most of us a bit worse off. An obvious example here is what's happened to some industry in the UK, particularly as a result of the opening up to international trade. That opening up to international trade has made us better off as a country overall. But the closing down of some industries in the UK has made people who worked there and the communities they live in a lot worse off. It's increased inequality. Now, we've paid money to people who have been made unemployed through the benefit system. We've redistributed other money to some of these areas. But the communities that they lived in still did really badly. And in fact, you can see evidence of suffering down the generations. And the answer can't just be to increase the level of welfare benefits that they get. It's also important to give people the respect that they get from good jobs, progression through the labour market, living as part of vibrant and successful communities. <laughs> Having listed all that, hopefully you'll understand why we felt this review was needed so much. We've only managed to touch the surface of so many important issues in this episode but we've gone into an awful lot of detail in the many papers that we've produced over the last few years looking not just at what you've heard in this episode but at the details of what's happening to all sorts of inequalities from health and education to gender and ethnic minorities. You can see all of those papers on the website ifs.org.uk forward slash inequality. As mentioned earlier the next three episodes will be hosted by Samaya Keynes. We look forward to sharing those with you. Thanks to Angus Deaton, Deborah Satz and Robert Joyce. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Alex Catlin was your audio producer. Thank you for listening.